Welcome to the Democracy Group, a network of podcasts about democracy, civic engagement, and civil discourse. In this feed, you will find a sampling of episodes from our podcast and the Democracy Group, as well as recordings from our events. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please visit democracygroup.org to find more like this. Now let's get to our featured episode. How did you get started with Public Citizen, if you don't mind me asking? Um, I started about 20 years ago. I'm, I'm from academia. I was working at New York University and uh, Public Citizen. I, I did a lot of work on the McCain-Feingold uh, campaign finance law. And after that passed, Public Citizen asked if I wanted to come to D.C. and start working as uh, one of their lobbyists. And uh, I, I accepted the offer. And that was all the way back in 2002. Do you find it odd that you describe yourself as a lobbyist, but you work against the interests of lobbyists? <laughs> I'm the only lobbyist in D.C. who actually calls himself a lobbyist. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I, I don't mind the title because I do I lobby for lobby reform. So I'm, I'm not very popular among my profession of lobbyists. Uh, you know, I've been imposing various gift limits, travel restrictions, disclosure requirements on lobbyists. And uh, so, yeah, they don't really like me a whole lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's probably that's probably a good place to be. Um. <laughs> <laughs> you know, my mother won't even tell her neighbors that I'm a lobbyist. She's proud that I work for public citizen, but she won't tell them I'm a lobbyist. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you a lawyer too? Because that's the uh, that's that's the double whammy. No, I'm a political scientist. Got a PhD from USC. Okay, well, it's, USC is a great school. So yeah, got a lot of great great academics over at USC. I just. Uh, just released an episode with um uh with uh lynn Baverick uh over at usc to uh just just uh on tuesday so yeah oh yeah hmm. yeah very, but, uh, very, very impressive well it's uh it's like i said it's a great school a lot of great great people coming out of usc um can you tell me a little bit about citizens united like uh how did it start you know, it started as a uh, not not a serious challenge to our campaign finance law. Uh, there was a group called Citizens United, and they just wanted to pay for one of their documentaries with some corporate money and advertising. So they were actually just asking the court for a, a narrow carve out for themselves. And uh, Public Citizen was one of many groups that was defending our campaign finance law. This is the McCain-Feingold law that I worked on. And uh, and it went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court decided to throw it back in our laps and said, we don't just want to do a narrow carve-out. We want to challenge the entire law that prohibits corporate involvement in campaigns. Literally, that's a hundred-year-old tradition where we ban corporate involvement in campaigns. And it was the U.S. Supreme Court that decided, no, we want to go beyond a carve-out. You know, we actually want to take on the century-old ban on corporate money in politics. And that's what they did. Did it completely catch you by surprise, the ruling? Yes, it did. As a matter of fact, you know, when the Supreme Court threw the case back in our lap and turned it into a big 
big case, they only gave us 30 days to uh, file new briefs. And uh, yes, it caught us entirely by surprise. Well, you know, it, it, it follows on earlier Supreme Court rulings of just like three years prior, where the, the Rehnquist Court upheld the entire campaign finance law, the McCain-Feingold law. And then uh, we had a change in Supreme Court justices. Bush appointed another conservative onto the, on the court. And with that, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court just started striking down its own precedent that it had established three years earlier. Yes, it caught us by surprise. Well, I, I want to just kind of mention now that we're starting to get some listeners in that the way that we do this is that if you are interested in asking Craig a question, feel free to uh, raise your hand and um, you can be able to do that in the Twitter app. And we'll be able to bring you on as a speaker to be able to ask your question for Craig. Otherwise, if you just want to listen, uh, Craig and I can just continue to banter. Um, Craig, one of the things that uh, I wanted to know about that's more, I mean, Citizens United is years old now. It's something that bothers many of us who are focused on political reform still to this day. But something much more recent is this new Disclose Act. Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and why it's so necessary to pass this piece of legislation? Well, we're trying our best to, uh, you know, moderate the destructive influence of the Citizens United decision that allows unlimited corporate spending uh, on independent expenditures and electioneering communication ads. We don't stand a chance at this point of getting the Supreme Court to reverse itself. And so the focus has been to try to pass legislation so we at least get disclosure of the corporate money that is pouring into our elections. And the Disclose Act was the last effort in which we tried doing that. Uh, most of the corporate money comes through nonprofit groups, electioneering nonprofit groups, and they don't have to disclose the sources of their, of their funds. And that's called dark money. This is the preferred avenue for corporate corporations. They really don't want to, most corporations don't really want to be out there in the public eye supporting, say, Donald Trump or, or Joe Biden. They rather do it surreptitiously and secretly through these nonprofits and dark money. The Disclose Act, we've been pushing this ever since the Citizens United decision, uh, you know, uh, would require that these electioneering nonprofit groups actually disclose the sources of their uh, of their electioneering funds, and uh, we've lost it every every congressional session ever since it's been introduced. It's been voted upon about ten times in the U.S. Senate, and the Republicans are just stonewalling on this and and blocking it at every turn. Uh, the last vote just happened uh, about a week ago. Uh, Schumer brought it to the floor, uh, the Senate floor, knowing full well that uh, it, it wasn't going to pass. And every Democrat voted yes, and every Republican voted no. And uh, with the, you know, you have to get a supermajority uh, to pass, uh, you know, the cloture vote. And uh, so it failed now and at a 49-49 vote. 
Why is it so hard to get just a handful of Republicans to kind of cross the line on this piece of legislation? I'd imagine that lots of conservative voters want to see this passed as well. Conservative voters do, but not <laughs> not Republican members of Congress. Uh, the re- Congressional Republicans and and for that matter, you know, the uh, presidential candidates, Republican presidential candidates disproportionately are awarded by dark money. Uh, More dark money generally flows uh, towards Republican candidates than Democrats. Now, that I, I do not intend to say that Democrats are not taking dark money. They'll take money wherever it comes from. But when you get this corporate money flowing into nonprofits as dark money, it tends to disproportionately favor Republican candidates. Therefore, the uh, Republicans in Congress really don't want to see uh, transparency of where this money is coming from. And, and they've refused to do so. Now, if you take a look at average voters, uh, Republicans, Democrats, independents alike, we all want disclosure of where the source of the money is coming from. But it's been blocked in Congress every year since it's been introduced. So tell me a little bit about, about the actual support for legislation like this. Um, particularly from both sides of the aisle, Uh, not in terms of like congressmen, but I'm talking about like regular people. Uh, Does public citizen have support from both Democrats and people who associate themselves as Republicans? And why is there any difference in how they kind of come to those same decisions when they're coming from different political perspectives? Um, Regular voters of every political persuasion overwhelmingly support disclosure and the Disclose Act. Now, Public Citizen has some Republican uh, members who support our work. Uh, Probably more Democrats than Republicans support Public Citizen. But when it comes to transparency of money in politics, literally we're talking 70% of all Americans, no matter if you're Republican, Democratic, or Independent, really want to see uh, where this money's coming from and who's trying to buy our elections. Uh, Unfortunately, you know, we just, we can't get it through that as long as Republicans have a substantial numbers in the Senate, we can't get 10 Republicans in the Senate to support the Disclose Act. And so it's failed every session so far. I I really want to emphasize, I mean, the importance of the 2022 election. I mean, we are in the throes of the battle of for the very essence of American democracy. And it's not at all clear how this is going to end. You know, the insurrection January 6th gave us a clear warning that there is a very sizable number of uh, Americans who don't support democracy and are ready to overthrow it. And, uh, you know, the January 6th investigative committee hearing has painted a very clear picture that Donald Trump knew he lost, he lied about it, and then deliberately sought to overthrow the 2020 elections. Uh, Trump Republicans this year 
are dominating the Republican congressional candidates. And that's why so much is at stake in 2022 and beyond and why so much money is pouring into the election. You know, the 2022 election is going to be the most expensive congressional election in history. Uh, We're expecting roughly about $9.3 billion being spent to buy our new Congress. And that's, you know, that's up 500 percent since 1998. So this is a critical election we are facing. So let's let's talk a little bit more about public citizen itself can you talk a little bit craig about how public citizen was formed why it got started i believe it started back in the 70s yes it began in the 1970s and then the origins are actually quite humorous uh it started out a uh, a guy fresh out of law school ralph nader came to D.C., and he noticed that everybody had their own lobbyists except the public. And uh, he published a book called Unsafe at Any Speed that criticized the uh, safety features of uh, primarily General Motors cars. And so the head of General Motors, Roger B. Smith at the time, decided he's got to discredit this Ralph Nader. And he assumed that Ralph Nader is into drugs like everyone out of college back then. And so he organized basically a goon squad that followed secretly followed Ralph Nader around filming him, uh, unbeknownst to Ralph Nader. And, you know, they thought they'd catch him smoking marijuana or something. And Ralph just wasn't into that. So that didn't work. So Roger B. Smith then hired some prostitutes to try to pick up Ralph Nader in in a grocery store while his goon squad was filming this. And for whatever reason, Ralph didn't respond to that one either. And then Ralph was walking into the Capitol, and the Capitol Police pulled him aside and said, do you know you're being followed and filmed? And it turned into a huge scandal. Uh, Ralph sued General Motors and... uh, you know, won this huge settlement that he used to set up public citizen. So it's kind of funny. I mean, we're anti-corporate, but here we really are, you know, began as an endowment from General Motors. But but obviously it's the most backwards, bizarre endowment of corporate history, probably. (laughs) 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 Yep. But that's the origins of public citizen and public citizen now is, you know, a a very large, uh, you know, think tank, nonprofit advocacy group. We have about 80 full time employees, which is pretty big for for a nonprofit organization. And we specialize in a lot of lot of different fields from auto safety to my field, which is campaign finance and governmental ethics. What What are some of the more recent victories that you guys have achieved? I mean, I was going through the website and you guys have numerous like accomplishments that you guys have actually delivered on. Uh, do you want to go ahead and name some of those? Um, sure. I'll, I'll name the ones that, that I worked on. Uh, way back in 
2006, I noticed, you know, I'm, I'm trying to lobby for campaign finance reform, setting up limits on money and politics and even public financing. And I noticed I couldn't get anything done because uh, the public sphere, the policy sphere was dominated by the wealthy lobbyists, K Street lobbyists. And so I decided before I can even get to campaign finance reform, I've got to reform the lobbying profession and open up the books on that. So I helped draft what was called the Honest Leadership and Open Government Act. And that not only set up a comprehensive online disclosure system of what lobbyists are doing and where they're getting their money and how they're spending it, but it also imposed all kinds of gift restrictions on lobbyists. Any lobbyist or any organization that hires lobbyists, including public citizen, cannot provide any gifts to members of Congress or elected officials. And that includes lunch. I mean, uh, we can't even buy lunch for a member of Congress anymore. We, we banned that. It, you know, it targeted what what Jack Abramoff was specializing in. He was a, a leading K Street lobbyist. He had a restaurant called Signatures Restaurants over on the other side of the Capitol where he had a table set aside specifically for members of Congress to come in for free winding and dining. And, uh, you know, so I added in that gift ban that shut down things like uh, that, that type of free winding and dining. Also, travel restrictions. Uh, Jack Abramoff would, uh, part of his influence peddling tools was he would fly members of Congress all around the, the globe for vacations to Scotland to play golf. And so that would endear the members of Congress to Jack Abramoff. We banned that. In, in the Honest Leadership and Open Government Act. At this point, organizations can only pay for a one-day trip for a member of Congress. That's just long enough to fly a member of Congress out to your conference and then fly him back the next day. And that banned uh, these uh, travel junkets for a large part. That passed in 2008. Uh, a more recent victory really was the Stock Act of 2012. You wouldn't believe this, but prior to 2012, while it was illegal for you and me and Martha Stewart to uh, to do insider trading on the stock market, it was not illegal for members of Congress. And they were doing it. I mean, uh, literally, there was an academic study that came out of Georgia University that showed that members of Congress enjoy a 12% higher rate of return on the stock market than the rest of us, which means either members of Congress are geniuses at trading on the stock market or they're using inside information. And I know full well it's, it's the latter. So in 2012, uh, I helped draft and sponsor and pass the Stock Act that for the first time applied the law against insider trading to members of Congress and, and all elected officials. So the, these are some pretty big, pretty big achievements. I'm about to lose uh, tomorrow on another issue that I've been pushing. Uh, we saw during the pandemic that there's still a considerable amount of congressional insider trading going on, even though it's now illegal. Members, it, it's, it's very difficult to prove insider trading. So members were getting away with it. There would be like Senator Richard Burr 
uh, Senator Kelly Loeffler, David Perdue, who went into confidential briefings with the CDC on the economic impact of the uh, of the pandemic and came out of that confidential briefing and they all just dumped their stocks. Uh, they apparently were alerted that the pandemic was going to seriously damage our economy and cause the stock market to crash. Richard Byrd dumped all his stocks one week before that stock market crash. And uh, so I'm then trying, working with a large number of groups, to take the Stock Act a step further, and that is to ban uh, members of Congress from doing any trading on the stock market at all. Uh, they would have to uh, get rid of their stock investments, either put them in a, in a blind trust or, or invest them into mutual funds, but simply could not buy and sell stocks anymore. And uh, it looked like we were going to pass this for a while. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is, has pledged to try bringing it up for a vote on the House floor. But at this point, some Democrats have revolted against it. Uh, Steny Hoyer in particular. So it looks like we're not going to get a vote on it yet. I'm hoping that once the election passes, we can resume this battle during the uh, lame duck session and see if we can get some Republicans on board for a change. Wait, wait. It, that seems odd, though, that this would have more traction after the election, because I would think that this would be an opportunity to be able to show voters that you stand for transparency, that you're against corruption. I would think that this type of legislation would be that rare type of legislation that's easier to pass before the election rather than after. That was my thinking. And boy, I was trying to convince Democrats, especially in the House, of that point. You know, they, this is the same as the Disclose Act. I mean, Schumer brought up the Disclose Act for a vote in the Senate just to show Americans, you know, the difference between Democrats and Republicans in Congress. Uh, the fact that Democrats support transparency and Republicans don't. Uh, this Stock Act uh, would have had the, a similar, similar impact. I mean, it was a chance for congressional Democrats to, uh, to approve very popular ethics legislation. Uh, you know, once again, just like the Disclose Act, overwhelming majorities of all Americans, Republicans, Democrats, and independents, would like to see a ban on congressional stock trading activity. But Steny Hoyer uh, bucked the trend, and he stopped it from happening. So the only hope we have at this point is in the lame duck session. Well, I know it's I know it's Democrats mainly supporting this legislation, but I'm still shocked that more Republicans don't cross the aisle on this. I mean, John McCain is a famous example of a Republican who stand who stood very firmly for campaign finance reform. I mean, the uh, legislation was the McCain-Feingold legislation. I mean, it was sponsored by him for years before it ever got passed. So, I mean, I, I just again, it's not just Democrats that we should be shocked at for not supporting this. I mean, we should continue to be shocked that Republicans don't cross the aisle and say, hey, we're going to vote on legislation, whether it's the Disclose Act or whether it's this new piece of legislation that we're talking about. There are some Republican members of Congress who do support 
banning stock trading activity altogether. Believe it or not, Josh Hawley is one of those uh, who introduced a similar bill to ban stock trading activity. But Senator Jeff Merkley, who was really championing this whole cause on the Senate side, uh, basically threw up his hands in disgust about a week ago, uh, claiming he could only get about two or three Repo- Republicans to support the legislation. And so, uh, you know, he, he was just disgusted that more Republicans didn't sign on. Now, when we, when we go into the lame duck session, you know, then perhaps some of this party polarization that's prevented a, a enough Republicans to back the type of ethics legislation, maybe that will subside in the lame duck and we'll be able to get more Republicans to sign on. But we'll see. One of the other issues regarding stock trading that's come up recently is the the fact that many members of Congress actually have uh, business interests in China and other foreign countries right now. Uh, China's the one that's really kind of pique people's interest. Um, I, I would think of that as being one of the parts that you're talking about, such as putting all of your income into a blind trust or all of your assets into a blind trust, rather. I mean, that would make it so that you wouldn't be beholden to foreign interests as well when you're a member of Congress. That's right. And you'd think members of Congress would get the message here. Uh, you know, I, I cited Richard Burr, Kelly Loeffler, and David Perdue on the Senate side. Uh, Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue from Georgia both lost their Senate seats because of this insider trading scandal. Richard Burr lost his chairmanship on the Senate Intelligence Committee because of this insider trading scandal. You'd think members of Congress would realize that it's a political uh, hot potato to start playing in the stock market especially when you're buying and selling stocks in businesses that you directly oversee from your congressional purchase. You'd think, you'd think members of Congress would recognize it's in their own interest to pass this type of legislation. But so far, we haven't succeeded in convincing them of this. Well, well, we're coming up on 730. So let me ask you one last question here, Greg. Uh, if there's one thing that you would do, um, like if you were able to propose something, pull together the coalition to make it happen, one piece of legislation that you could just will your way to being enacted, what would it be? You know, this may come as a surprise to uh, many of your listeners, but I think the most effective way of trying to uh, reestablish American democracy and have reasonable limits on money and politics and ban corporate involvement in elections is to expand the court. Right now, uh, Trump Republicans are the dominant majority on the U.S. Supreme Court, and they're not going to change their mind when it comes to corporate money in elections or, you know, anything else that impacts American democracy. Uh, so the only way we can try restoring some of these uh, rights for individual citizens is actually to change the size of the court. You know, public citizen, I, I, I've been arguing for expanding the court 
uh, ever since the Citizens United decision. And Public Citizen lets me do my own academic work where I present papers on this at academic conferences. Their only requirement was, Craig, don't put Public Citizen's name on that. <laughs> you know, but after Mitch McConnell actually did pack the court with these uh, Trump Republicans, Public Citizen has now come on board and they do support legislation to expand the size of the court. Wow. Well, Craig, thanks so much for joining us. This will be available as a recording for people on Twitter. And I think uh, we'll also have this available on the Democracy Group feed. Once again, uh, my name is Justin Kemp. I host the Democracy Paradox podcast. Uh, you can also check out the work that I do at democracyparadox.com. Uh, Craig is a lobbyist at Public Citizen. Craig, do you want to uh, just kind of mention where it is that we can learn more about you and your organization? Sure. Our webpage is uh, citizen.org. And there you can learn just about everything on Public Citizen. Everything we do, we post on our webpage. Okay, great. Thanks so much, Craig. Thank you, Justin. Take care. You too. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Democracy Group. If you want more podcasts like this, then visit democracygroup.org. There you will find our events, topics, and a newsletter as well. So head on over to democracygroup.org.